welcome to the Blue Rose Film Podcast, a show dedicated to celebrating the ongoing mystery and dream that is cinema and tracing film history through the decades via the films that have meant the most to me. My name is Jonty Cornford and I'm a writer, editor, composer, music producer and a lover of films. As a tribute to the filmmaker who is largely responsible for this podcast, over the next little while, I'm going to be going through the filmography of David Lynch, chronologically, starting with this week's film, Eraserhead. In the process, we're going to be outlining the story of David Lynch's artistic life and tracing his story through film history, something that I can't wait to hopefully do with a number of other filmmakers in the future after we wrap up our David Lynch narrative. We'll be covering his work in both the deep dive format and with guest episodes along the way. This week, though, we're going all the way back to before David Lynch's name had become an adjective and before his visual signature was part of popular cinematic language. Join me on a journey into a dream of dark and troubling things. David Lynch's Eraserhead. Summarising the plot of Eraserhead is a task not dissimilar to that of explaining a joke. It's really not the point, and kind of diminishes the joke. But regardless, here's a quick recap of the narrative of Eraserhead. Somewhere in the void, a man sits alone on a solitary planet floating in the darkness. The face of Henry Spencer, played by Jack Nance, floats through the void. The man in the planet pulls one of the levers in his home, opening Henry's mouth. What looks like a giant sperm floats out of Henry's mouth, dropping into a puddle on the planet. Henry is a man living in an industrial hellscape of a city. His girlfriend Mary, played by Charlotte Stewart, is pregnant and says that Henry is the father. He's introduced to her parents over dinner in what is an awkward and surreal nightmare. At this dinner, he's told that the baby was born severely deformed. Henry and Mary move in together to look after the baby, which refuses to eat and cries constantly. Mary can't take the baby's constant crying and walks out, leaving Henry to look after the baby, which has fallen sick, covered in sores and struggling to breathe. Henry begins experiencing visions, 
again seeing the man in the planet, as well as the lady in the radiator, who sings to him as she stomps on miniature replicas of Henry's child. After a sexual encounter with the beautiful woman across the hall, Henry has another vision. The lady in the radiator sings as Henry watches his own head fall off, revealing a stump underneath that resembles his child's face. Henry's head falls from the sky, landing on a street and breaking open. A boy finds it, bringing it to a pencil factory to be turned into a razor's. Awakened, Henry seeks out the beautiful woman across the hall, but finds her with another man. Crushed, Henry returns to his room, and he takes a pair of scissors and for the first time removes the child's clothes. It's revealed that the child has no skin, that the bandages were holding its internal organs together, and they spill apart after the rags are cut. The child gasps in pain, and Henry stabs its organs with the scissors. The wounds gush a thick liquid covering the child, and the power in the room overloads, causing the lights to flicker. As they flicker on and off, the child grows to huge proportions. As the lights burn out completely, the child's head is replaced by the planet seen at the beginning of the film. Henry appears amidst a billowing cloud of eraser shavings. The side of the planet bursts apart, and inside, the man in the planet struggles with his levers, which are now emitting sparks. Henry is embraced warmly by the lady in the radiator, as both white light and white noise build to a crescendo before the screen turns black and silent. As this ridiculous synopsis suggests, this is a film best felt and experienced, not necessarily understood. Seeing a razorhead for the first time was incredibly challenging, and something that at the time stretched my ability to procure meaning out of film. I wasn't able to rely on exposition or literal narrative. I had to attune my ears and eyes to an entirely new way of delivering information and meaning with the language of cinema. Much like my experience of seeing The Shining for the first time, something I talk about in the very first episode of this show, seeing a razor head was also a defining moment for me in the process of developing my own tastes, not just as a consumer of narrative, but also as somebody who wanted to take part in creating and working in narrative. Not only was it the first time that I'd seen anything quite like it, but it was also the first time I had seen anything with the name of David Lynch attached to it. For the first time as a watcher of films, I'd come across a voice that I connected with, a voice that I resonated with and wanted to spend time with, in the same way that you want to re-listen to records that you love, or buy the new book from your favourite author. I remember watching Eraserhead with some friends a number of years after first seeing it, and being excited by the vastly different reactions that it elicited from the group. Some loved it, and some didn't quite know what to make of it, while some outright hated the film. While I remain in the camp of those who love Eraserhead, it's the sort of film that I'm able to understand and empathise with its detractors. It certainly doesn't hold the viewer's hand, and it commits fully and without blinking to an aesthetic and a core idea, executing that aesthetic and idea to its fullest and most fully realised expression. And if you're not on board with that aesthetic or core idea, it's a rough 90 minutes to sit through. We have crossed paths with David Lynch before on this journey, first in the early 1990s when we looked at Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, and then again in the early 80s when we had a look at Dune with Jack Sherlock on the show. This week we're going to be going all the way back to the beginning of the very inception of David Lynch's filmmaking. It's a story just about as strange and enigmatic as the films that he makes, and one filled with quirks and accents along the way. Lynch was born in 1946 in Montana, USA, to a mother who was a city person and a father who was from the country. Immediately, duality is an integral part of Lynch's life growing up. By all accounts, David's parents were exceptional people. His first wife, Peggy, said, Something David told me about his parents that was extraordinary was that if any of their kids had an idea for something they wanted to make or learn about, it was taken absolutely seriously. They had a workshop where they did all kinds of things, and the question immediately became, how do we make this work? It moved from being something in your head to something out in the world really fast, and that was a powerful thing. 
David's parents supported their kids in being who they were, Peggy continued, but David's father had definite standards of behaviour. You didn't treat people poorly, and when you did something, you did it well. He was very strict about that. David has impeccable standards when it comes to craft, and I'm sure his father had something to do with that. Lynch's account of his childhood has, over the years, emerged as a series of beautifully crafted snapshots, mental Polaroids that are dense and imagistic, and which often combine humour with dread. He delights in playing with a particular repertoire of audiovisual references. These snapshots at once tantalise and deflect with their promise of revelation and offer of refuge. In Lynch on Lynch, a collection of interviews between Lynch and Chris Rodley, he's asked about being frightened a lot as a child, to which he answered, many things, but troubled more than living in fear, really troubled. I would think this is not the way it's supposed to be, and it would trouble me. Perhaps his father's work dealing with diseased trees imbued him with a heightened awareness of what he has described as the wild pain and decay that lurks beneath the surface of things. Whatever the reason, Lynch was unusually sensitive to the entropy that instantly begins eating away at every new thing, and he found it unsettling. Family trips to his grandparents in New York made Lynch anxious too, and he has recalled being highly disturbed by the things that he encountered there. The things I'd be upset by were mild compared with the feelings that they'd give me, he said. I think people feel fear even when they don't understand the reason for it. Sometimes you walk into a room and you can sense that something's wrong. And when I'd go to New York, that feeling covered me like a blanket. Being out there in nature, there's a different kind of fear. But there's fear here too. Some very bad things can happen in the country. At the age of 14, Lynch's family moved to Alexandra, Virginia, and Lynch befriended a boy called Toby Keeler shortly after beginning his freshman year. I met David on the front lawn of his girlfriend's house, and my first impression was of her, not David, said Keeler, who proceeded to woo the girlfriend, Linda Stiles, away from Lynch. David lived in another part of town, but the driving age in Alexandra was 15, and he'd driven his family's Chevy Impala with the big wings on it to her house. I liked David immediately. He's always been one of the most likeable people on the planet, and we've joked for years about the fact that I stole his girlfriend. We were both in a fraternity at Hammond High School, but the David I knew wasn't a partying frat boy. Lynch and Keeler became close friends, but it was Toby's father, artist Bushnell Keeler, who really changed Lynch's life. Bush had a huge effect on David because he had the courage to break away from the life that he'd been living and get a studio and just start making art, said Toby. David said that a bomb went off in his head when he heard what Bushnell did. Bushnell understood something that nobody else did at the time, which was that David really and truly wanted to be an artist. Bushnell thought that he was at a good point in life to get a boost with that, and was fully behind him. So Lynch often stayed over at the Keeler house, and Bushnell would make space in his studio for David to work. Lynch's commitment to art deepened further when he met Jack Fisk during his freshman year, and they laid the foundations of an enduring friendship that continues to this day. David and I had heard about each other because we were both interested in painting, said Fisk. I remember him standing in a doorway at school introducing himself, and he told me that he was a sophomore, although I knew that he was a freshman. We sometimes laugh about the fact that he lied to me that day. Fisk would go on to become a widely respected production designer and director, collaborating with Lynch on many occasions, including on a race ahead. Lynch's first love was painting. In Lynch on Lynch, Chris Rodley asks, what's so satisfying about painting and why do you still feel compelled to do it? Lynch answers, well, you can sit in a chair and I just love sitting in a chair and going off and float away. And sometimes when I'm going to sleep, especially, or sitting in a chair with my eyes closed, I drift through this one space where images just come and I'm not prompting them. In fact, if I start thinking about it, they stop. And because I don't judge them and I don't think about them too much, they just come in. They're usually in a series of things. Like if it's a face, the next face is just a little bit different from the first face. It's all in the same line. And some of these ideas or images are kind of thrilling. To paint something is a way of catching them in a more permanent way. Then you have a thing that you can look at. 99% of these images you can't remember a week later. And a painting kind of reminds you of these. Also, it exists. And you work it up to a place where you can say that it's done and it's pleasing. It's a little bit of a thrill to have it and to have experienced it. 
During high school, both Lynch and Fisk attended classes at the Corcoran School of Art in DC, and their focus shifted increasingly to their lives off campus. I got a failure notice in art school, and I think David was going pretty poorly in his art class, but we were painting all the time, and we had many different studios together, said Fisk. I remember one on Cameron Street where we managed to rent a whole building and we painted one room black and that was where you would go and think. When I first met David, he was doing Paris street scenes and had a way of doing them with cardboard and tempera paint that was kind of nice. One day he came in with an oil painting of a boat by a dock. He was putting the paint on really thick at that point and a moth had flown into the painting and as it struggled to get out of the paint, it made this beautiful swirl in the sky. I remember he got really excited about that, seeing that death mixed in with his painting. American cinema was in the doldrums during the first half of the 1960s when Lynch was a teenager. The social revolution that breathed new life into American cinema had yet to begin, and the US studios were cranking out chaste romantic comedies starring Doris Day, beach party pictures, Elvis Presley musicals, and bloated historical epics. It was the golden era of foreign film, though, and Pasolini, Polanski, Fellini, Antonioni, Bunuel, Hitchcock, Goddard, Truffaut and Bergman were producing masterpieces during those years. Stanley Kubrick, who we looked at on episode one of this show, was one of the few US filmmakers breaking new ground, and Lynch had expressed great admiration for Kubrick's 1962 adaptation of Vladimir Nabokov's erotic comedy, Lolita. After graduating high school, Lynch studied at the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, but left after only a year, not feeling inspired at all to work in the environment that he found himself in. Instead of completing his study, he travelled around Europe for three years with Jack Fisk, who was also unhappy with his studies. By the time he returned to the United States, his parents had moved to Walnut Creek in California, so he decided to move to Philadelphia, enrolling in the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. Uh, Philadelphia to me, I always say, was my biggest influence. This city and the time of this city when I was here. So when I was here uh, from 65 to 70, uh, the city was, there was no graffiti. And the buildings seemed to be covered with a black soot. It was a filthy city. And it had a feeling of industry it had to me the most beautiful architecture row houses that reminded me sort of a factory neighborhoods work, working neighborhoods and the streets were narrow the buildings were all soot covered uh, the clouds hung low and it had a beautiful mood in the atmosphere there was fear, there was violence, there was despair and sadness, there was uh, a feeling of insanity and uh, a kind of a knowledge of corruption. And this kind of seeped into me with this architecture and made, a, made an influence, which I loved, by the way. <laughs> it was certainly different from the wide open spaces and uh, fresh air of Spokane and Missoula, I assume, where you grew up. Yeah, I grew up in the Northwest, a lot of time in the woods, um, small towns, relatively speaking, and it was a real blue skies, picket fence, um, mowed lawns kind of world with a lot of hope and chrome. <laughs> it was here in Philadelphia that Lynch met his first wife, Peggy, a fellow student, and they were married in 1967. The following year, Peggy gave birth to their daughter, Jennifer. Peggy later said that Lynch definitely was a reluctant father, but a very loving one. Hey, I was pregnant when we got married. We were both reluctant. As a family, they moved to Philadelphia's Fairmount neighborhood, where they bought a 12-room house for the relatively low price of $3,500 due to the area's high crime and poverty rates. Lynch later said, We lived cheap, but the city was full of fear. 
A kid was shot to death down the street. We were robbed twice, had windows shot out and a car stolen. The house was first broken into only three days after we moved in. The feeling was so close to extreme danger and the fear was so intense. There was violence and hate and filth. But the biggest influence in my whole life was that city. It was during his time at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts that he made his first short film called Six Men Getting Sick. The story behind what led to him making this early short is almost as bizarre as the film itself. What was the journey that took you to Eraserhead? All I wanted to be was a painter. And so I studied painting at the Boston Museum School and the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. While I was at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, I mostly painted at where I lived, but I also had a small cubicle in a big, large studio in the school. I was in this cubicle one night, painting a garden at night, mostly black with some leaves green coming out. And I was sitting looking at this painting, and from the painting I heard a wind and then I saw the green start to move. And I said, oh, a moving painting. <laughs> he made a number of other notable shorts during this time, including The Alphabet and The Grandmother. The Alphabet was made not long after his daughter Jennifer was born and included audio of Jennifer crying that Lynch recorded on a broken tape recorder without realising that it was broken. He loved the way that the broken recording warped and twisted the sounds of Jennifer's cries and so he used them in the film. In Lynch on Lynch he speaks about where the idea for the Alphabet came from. My wife Peggy's niece was having a bad dream one night and was saying the alphabet in her sleep in a tormented way. So that's sort of what started the alphabet going. The rest of it was subconscious. In what sense do you mean subconscious? Chris Rodley asks. Lynch responds, See, I never had to articulate anything. Painters don't have to talk. Every idea was in another language, deep down inside. I never had to bring it to the surface. So things were pure and, you know, better that way. I didn't have to justify anything. I could just let it come out. And that's why talking about things isn't a totally satisfactory thing. In 1970, Lynch moved with his wife and daughter to Los Angeles, where he began studying filmmaking at the American Film Institute Conservatory, a place that he later called completely chaotic and disorganised. Which was great. You quickly learned that if you were going to get something done, you would have to do it yourself. They just wanted to let people do their thing. Founded by George Stevens Jr., the AFI was directed by Tony Villani from 1968 through to 1977, and it was these two who recognised Lynch's talent and brought him to the school. He joined the members of the first graduating class, which included filmmakers Terence Malick, Caleb Deschanel, Tim Hunter and Paul Schrader. At that point, the school curriculum largely revolved around watching films and discussing them, and of particular importance to the 30 students in Lynch's class were studies in film analysis taught by Czechoslovakian filmmaker Frank Daniel. Daniel came to the United States in 1968 under the agency of George Stevens Jr., who had sent plane tickets to him and his family when the Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia, and he is cited by many AFI alumni as being an incredibly inspiring presence at the school. It was Daniel who devised what's known as the sequencing paradigm for screenwriting, which advocates devising 70 elements relating to specific scenes, writing each of them on a note card, then organising the note cards into a coherent sequence. You do this and you'll have a screenplay. It's a simple idea that proved incredibly useful to Lynch. In Lynch on Lynch, Chris Rodley asks how Eraserhead came about, and Lynch's exhaustive and fascinating answer is better than any summary that you could put together or find. Lynch says, Well, fate stepped in again and was really smiling on me. The centre was completely chaotic and disorganised, which was great, and you quickly learn that if you're going to get something done, you would have to do it yourself. They just wanted to let people do their thing. And if you could get it going, they would support it. They didn't really have any kind of programme. My first year at the centre was spent writing a 45-page script that I called Garden Back. The whole thing unfolded from this painting that I'd done. The script had a story in my mind, and it had what some people would call a monster in it. When you look at a girl, something crosses from her to you, and in this story, that something is an insect. Well, a couple of things then happened. 
Caleb Deschanel read the script and he called me up and said that he loved it. He was a fellow at the centre and a director of photography and he said that he wanted to shoot it. And that was really great with me. I'd worked with Caleb on a film that he was shooting for a guy named Jill Dennis and this guy was a friend of his and he wanted my permission to show him Gardenback. Frank Daniel was by far the best teacher that I ever had. Just a great teacher. I never really liked teachers, but I loved Frank because he wasn't a teacher, in a way. He just talked, and he loved cinema, and he knew everything about it. Frank was always trying to get me to talk about Gardenback, but I wasn't, you know, talking. So one day, Caleb and Frank and I went to see this guy at Fox. And this guy said, look, I want to give you $50,000 to make this movie. Caleb will shoot it, and it'll be a labour of love. You'll get everyone in there to do stuff for nothing. But he said, it's only 45 pages, and you've got to make it 115 or 110 pages. It's got to be a feature script. And this hurt my head. What does it even mean? So Frank tried to explain to me. He said things like, you have to have these scenes between people, and they have to talk. You should think about some dialogue. And I still didn't really know what he was on about. What are they going to say? I said. And so we started having these weekly meetings, which were like an experiment, because I really didn't know what they were getting at and I was curious to see what they were going to say to me. Eventually, a script got written. Jill Dennis was a writer and would come into the meetings, and Tony Villani would sit in on these meetings too. So they would talk to me, and I'd go home and try to write these things. What I wrote was pretty much worthless, but something happened inside me about structure, about scenes, and I don't even know what it was, but it sort of percolated down and became a part of me. But the script was pretty much worthless. I knew I'd just watered it down. On the first day of second year, the old fellows came in and met the new fellows. At the end of this meeting, they assigned different groups to different places to kick off the year, and I was assigned to a first-year group. In my mind, this was a humiliating thing, and I didn't understand it, so I just got really, really upset. All this frustration came out, and I stormed up to Frank Daniel, and I screamed at him. I just barged in, and I told him, I'm out of here. I quit. I went home, and Peggy said, what the hell is going on? They've been calling you every ten minutes. And I said, I quit. She said, well, they want to see you. So I calmed down. And the next day, I went up, but basically just to hear what they had to say to me. And Frank said, we must be doing something wrong, because you're one of our favourite people, and you're upset. What do you want to do? And I said, well, I sure don't want to do this piece of shit garden back now. It's wrecked. And he said, well, then what do you want to do? And I said, I want to do a race ahead. And he said, okay, do a race ahead then. Chris Rudley then asks, so you already had this idea ready to go? Lynch replies, I had a 21-page script. And they said, it's 21 pages. And Tony or somebody else said, so it's a 21-minute film. And I said, well, I think it's going to be a bit longer than that. So they elected it to be a 42-minute film. But the beautiful thing, because they were now feeling a little bit guilty, was that I was able to go to the equipment shed. My friend David Karski was in charge of all the cameras and cables, lights, everything, and I had this Volkswagen with a 4x8 wooden rack that held tons of stuff. Well, it was packed 4 or 5 feet tall with cables and lights, and the car was packed with camera equipment, and I'd drive down to these stables owned by the school, unload, and drive back up to get more. The stables were down at the bottom of the mansion down Doheny Road. It was a little mansion in and of itself. It had a greenhouse and a garden shed, all made of brick, with these shingle roofs. But it was all getting old and funny. It had garages and a hayloft, a big L-shaped room above the garages. It had a maid's quarters and places above for different people who worked for Dahini. Kitchens, bathrooms, like a little hotel, with a lot of other stuff around. Nobody wanted any of this space, and so Lynch essentially moved in turning it into his own studio and began making Eraserhead. With his newfound freedom and rediscovered passion colliding with both the slightly run-down feeling of the space he was working in and the influence that he carried over from Philly, he found himself working freely. But Eraserhead would not be completed until 1976. The production would progress in fits and starts, subject to financing and crew availabilities. Lynch was initially granted $10,000 to make the film, and the first major halt in production was when that money ran out. Due to the success of low-budget films like Easy Rider, the AFI found themselves under pressure from studios to focus on tight budgets, and so were unable to provide more funding for Eraserhead. 
The film was able to continue thanks to a loan from Lynch's parents at one point, and Lynch also started doing a paper run, delivering the Wall Street Journal to raise funds for his production. During this time, Lynch also amicably separated from and divorced Peggy, and married Mary Fisk, the sister of his friend Jack. Almost just as important to the film's success as Lynch's ability to maintain creative focus and ingenuity over a long period of time is the presence of actor Jack Nance. Henry Spencer is the role that Nance was born to play and has only taken on iconic status in cinema with that peculiar and striking head of hair matched with the sort of confused, troubled expression on his face. Not only did Nance's hair respond incredibly well to the look that was required for the film, holding its shape and position incredibly well, but he happily kept his hair in this style for the entirety of the lengthy stop-start production. An idea comes, and you see it, and you hear it, and you know it. How does it come? It comes like on a TV in your mind. You know, there's a, a line I've, I've always loved of, of Leonard Cohen. He said, if I knew where the good songs came from, I would go there more often. Absolutely. <laughs> People, we, want, I, we don't do anything without an idea. So they're beautiful gifts. And I always say, you desiring an idea is like a bait on a hook. Yeah. It can pull them in. And if you catch an idea that you love, that's a beautiful, beautiful day. And you write that idea down so you won't forget it. And that idea that you caught might just be a fragment of the whole, whatever it is you're working on, but now you have even more bait. Thinking about that small fragment, that little fish, will bring in more. And they'll come in and they'll hook on and more and more come in and pretty soon you might have a script or a chair or a painting or an idea for a painting but they come as in small more often than not small fragments i like to think of it as in the other room the puzzle is all together but they keep flipping in just one piece at a time in the other room over there (laughs) <laughs> in, in a sense, David, there's always another room somewhere mm-hmm. That's let's, a beautiful thing to think about Let's think about it a bit No, you think about it <laughs> The film's opening images of the man in the planet played by Fisk and the disembodied head of Henry Spencer immediately tells the viewer the level at which this narrative is going to be operating the level of the subconscious, the archetypal, and the symbolic. The shots of Henry wandering through the industrial landscape are also indicative of a register of whimsical comedy that is present in Eraserhead, somewhat paradoxically, in a way that's reminiscent of Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton. The script has a bare minimum amount of direction or dialogue, mostly focusing on evocative description. It's apparent in both these opening moments and in the way that the script is put together that the film's mood, palpable and vaguely sinister, was of primary importance to Lynch. The first half of the movie we've come to know matches the script pretty much word for word. However, the narrative in the second half of the film deviates somewhat to what was found in the original script. In Lynch's original vision, the film concluded with Henry being devoured by his baby. This doesn't occur in the film. Rather, a new character is introduced in the third act, The Woman in the Radiator and she transforms the conclusion of the story. Lynch supposedly experienced a spiritual awakening over the five years that Eraserhead was in production, and so it makes sense that the film changed along the way. Eraserhead is about karma, said Jack Fisk. I didn't realise it when we were working on it, but the man in the planet is pulling levers that symbolise karma. There are so many spiritual things in Eraserhead, and David made it before he started meditating. David's always been that way, and he's gotten even more spiritual over time. Lynch himself has said that Eraserhead is my most spiritual film, but no one has ever gotten that from it. The way it happened was that I had these feelings, but I didn't know what it really was all about for me. So I get out the Bible and start reading, and I'm reading along, and I come to this sentence, and I say, that's exactly it. I can't say which sentence it was, though. 
This is an unusually candid statement from Lynch, who is famously tight-lipped about explaining his work. One of the recurrent images in your films is of electricity arcing, is of you know light bulbs crackling on, and you have a you have a recurrent motif of you know like two points and something arcing between them, and it seems to me that this somehow relates to what you think about the synaptic arcs in our brain. When you talk about TM, when you talk about this thing, you talk about making connections. It seems to me that that's what that recurrent visual motif is about. And I know you hate saying what things mean in your films, but am I right in thinking that that's at least in the right area. No. <laughs> Believe it or not, Eraserhead is my most spiritual film. Mm -hmm. Now, why, why, elaborate on that. No, I won't. <laughs> um, no one, no one uh, sees it. When we talk about the mood of the film, a huge amount of what that mood comes down to is the sound. David Lynch has always talked about sound being at least 50% of what makes film work, or at the very least of equal importance to the image itself. As his career has continued on, he has maintained a very close relationship with sound, taking a hands-on approach to the sound in a lot of his projects. But in the case of Eraserhead, Alan Splett was instrumental to the success of the sound of Eraserhead. Splett had previously worked with Lynch on The Grandmother, and the two of them soundproofed a room in their studio with blankets, working on the sound for Eraserhead. The soundtrack is densely layered, including as many as 15 different sounds being played simultaneously using multiple reels. Sounds were created in a variety of different ways. For a scene in which a bed slowly dissolved into a pool of liquid, Lynch and Splett inserted a microphone inside a plastic bottle floated it in a bathtub and recorded the sound of air blown through the bottle. After being recorded, sounds were further augmented by alterations to their pitch, reverb and frequencies. This process manifests not just in what you would call a traditional movie score for a racer head, but an entire soundscape that renders the world a seething, oily, industrial black hole. Here's Lynch again in Lynch on Lynch. I'm real fascinated by presences, what you might call room tone. It's the sound that you hear when there's silence in between words or sentences. It's a tricky thing, because in this seemingly kind of quiet sound, some feelings can be brought in, and a certain kind of picture of a bigger world can be made, and all these things are important to make that world. The sound of Eraserhead is a lot of what makes this film so unforgettable, transforming even the most mundane, ordinary situation, like visiting your girlfriend's parents for the first time, into a hellish nightmare. Dinner's almost ready. Pleased to meet you. Sit down. tells me you're a very nice fellow. What do you do? 
Uh oh, I'm on vacation. What did you do? Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I, I work at Lapel's factory. I'm a printer. Henry's very clever at printing. Yes, he sounds very clever. I thought I heard a stranger. We've got chicken tonight. Strangest damn things. They're man-made. Little damn things. Smaller than my fist. But they're new. I'm Bill. Hello. I'm Henry. Henry's at Lapel's factory. Well, printing's your business, huh? Plumbing's mine. Thirty years. I've seen this neighborhood change from pastures to the hell hole it is now. I put every damn pipe in this neighborhood. Yeah, Bill. People think pipes grow in their home, but they sure as hell don't. Look at my knee. Look at my knee. Bill. Are you hungry? Bill. When a film like Eraserhead is so clearly operating from the subconscious, I often find that the process of decoding them and procuring meaning from them is best achieved by just keeping it simple. As we outlined at the beginning of the podcast, there is a narrative to be found in Eraserhead, and in actuality, it's a very simple narrative. But more important than the literal narrative making logical sense is whether or not you get a sense of the film making emotional sense. Lynch was young when he married Peggy and had Jennifer, and you don't have to look at Eraserhead particularly closely to see that it's a story about a young man and his anxieties around being a parent. The fact that the crying noises that the baby makes in the film are largely recordings of Jennifer Lynch, much like in the alphabet, removes a great deal of ambiguity from the film's thematic subtext. And so while this film is definitely filled with a great deal of abstract and surreal imagery, like the stop-motion worm, the woman in the radiator, the dream sequences, or the baby itself, it's a film that nonetheless makes complete sense, emotionally and tonally, and so those images are imbued with meaning and resonances through that emotional and tonal truth. The woman in the radiator is one image in the film that is particularly enigmatic. We see a number of small, sperm-like creatures falling from the ceiling onto the stage that she's dancing and singing on, much like what we see in the beginning of the film in what is probably the weirdest, most abstract sex scene ever put to film. And then we see the lady in the radiator squashing them underfoot, illustrating her, for me, as a pretty clear signifier for the sort of romantic relationship that Henry craves, linked with his deep desire to escape from the world that he finds himself in. It's pretty obvious from the destruction of these creatures that we see her taking part in that there are no kids in the picture with her. And so it's even more infuriating for Henry when the cries of his child bring him back to reality. Speaking of which, let's talk about that baby. Henry, may I speak to you a minute? Over here. sexual intercourse. Why? Did you? Why are you asking me this question? I have a very good reason. And now I want you to tell me. I, I'm very... Uh, I love Mary. Henry, I asked you if you and Mary had sexual intercourse. Well, I don't, I, I don't think that's any of your business. Henry! I'm sorry. 
very bad trouble if you won't cooperate. Well, I... I... Mary? Frederick! Answer me. I'm too nervous. There's a baby. It's at the hospital. Mom! And you're the father. But that's impossible. It's only... Mother, been... they're still not sure it is a baby. It's premature, but there's a baby. After the two of you are married, which should be very soon, you can pick the baby up. You don't mind, do you, Henry? I mean, about getting married? No. <laughs> the legend surrounding exactly how Lynch constructed this prop is almost as mysterious and disturbing as the film itself. Some say that it's an embalmed lamb fetus. Others say that it's made from a dead-skinned rabbit. Lynch has made vague suggestions about the baby's origins, saying perhaps it was born nearby or maybe it was just found. The projectionist who worked on the film's dailies was blindfolded by Lynch to avoid revealing the prop's true nature. When asked by Chris Rodley about the prop in Lynch on Lynch, he responds, It could have been made by somebody else. It could have been found. Everybody and his little brother now knows how things are done. Just like finding out the house wasn't on Sunset Boulevard. Or like Cliffhanger. More people have seen how they did the helicopter shot in that film than people have actually seen the movie. Magicians keep their secrets to themselves, and they know that as soon as they tell them, someone will say, are you kidding me? That's so simple. It's horrifying to me that people do that. People don't realise it, but as soon as they hear or see that, something dies inside of them. They're deader than they were before. They're not happy to know about this stuff. They're happy not to know about it, and they shouldn't know about it. It's nothing to do with the film, and it will only ruin the film. But regardless of how it was made, the baby in Eraserhead has stood the test of time, remaining as disturbing and confusing to look at today as it did in 1977. It looks real, and it has a tactility to it that is really upsetting. People often talk about films like John Carpenter's The Thing or David Cronenberg's Videodrome or Scanners when they talk about the best practical effects ever seen in film. But this prop in Eraserhead is right up there with some of the most convincing practical effects of all time. When we eventually see Henry cut open the bandages that turn out to be the only thing holding the baby's organs together, it's visceral and upsetting, and it's gory in a way that reminds me of George Romero's Night of the Living Dead in how startling the violence appears in such beautiful black and white photography. You can smell the death and the stench of gore through the screen. Did Henry intend to kill the baby in unwrapping it, using the scissors to finish the job? Or was he simply attempting to get a better look at his child before being forced to put it out of his misery? We don't actually know the answer to these questions, and the act as depicted on screen is so primal and instinctual that one can only assume that it was an entirely subconscious choice in the script. Exactly who and what the baby and the lady in the radiator are isn't really the point. Rather, what their effect is on Henry and what they represent for him. In his book The Monster Show, A Cultural History of Horror, David J. Scull describes the film as depicting human reproduction as a desolate freak show, an occupation fit only for the damned. Scull also posits a different characterization of the lady in the radiator, casting her as desperately eager for an unseen audience's approval. In his book David Lynch Decoded, Mark Allen Stewart proposes that the lady in the radiator is in fact Henry's subconscious, a manifestation of his own urge to kill his child, who embraces him after he does so, as if to reassure him that he's done the right thing. A thread that we might pick up on during a later episode on Twin Peaks is the similarity between the lady in the radiator and the man from another place in the Red Room. The appearance of the floor pattern in Henry's apartment lobby is also that of the floor in the Red Room, a connection that no doubt we will explore in more depth when we arrive at Twin Peaks. Possibly my favourite section of the film is the dream sequence, where the film takes its name from, that leads to Henry's head being found and his brain used for pencil erasers. 
As mentioned earlier, underneath the constant sense of dread and unease in this film, there is also a darkly comic undertone of the absurd and the creeping influence of surrealism that would come to define a lot of Lynch's film career moving forward. The simple image of Henry standing in the elevator as the doors take forever to close before finally shutting, or the manic energy from Mary's father at their first meeting. But especially so in the extended dream sequence of the film, Eraserhead reveals its hand as being just as competent at drawing dark chuckles from its audience as it is at generating shrieks of fear. Sonny, what do you got there? This will reveal itself further as we continue working our way through the career of David Lynch, this obsession with balancing light and dark, a preoccupation with contrasting the very worst of humanity, both interior and exterior, with the very best that humanity can provide in terms of wholesomeness and goodness. It's important to note that Eraserhead does indeed have hope, and does indeed have an eye for humanity, despite the ghoulish and horrific aesthetic that it embodies. Perhaps that is the point of Eraserhead, that even when life can get so terrible and the world around you can get so grim, that there still is the option to choose hope, represented in this case by the lady singing to him in the radiator. Lynch has also accepted publicly that there are some pretty clear Freudian things going on in Eraserhead. My interpretation has always been that it's a simple story of a young man who gets his girlfriend pregnant before he's ready to be a dad, and he then has to deal with the ramifications. Awkward in-laws, the challenges of looking after a child, the sexual desire he feels for women outside of his relationship as a sort of escapism, and the irrational and yet very real feeling that your child is ruining your life, stopping you from being able to live the life that you want to live. Perhaps the ending of the film is some sort of wish fulfilment, Henry finally freeing himself from the cage that fatherhood has suddenly placed him in. And what is art if not an honest and unfiltered expression of the artist at the time? Although perhaps all you really need to understand what a razorhead means is David Lynch's own description. A dream of dark and troubling things. Here's Lynch again. I love the idea that one thing can be different for different people. Everything's that way. Like the O.J. Simpson trial, everyone hears the same words, they see the same faces, the same expressions, the same anger or frustration or evidence, and they come away with absolutely different verdicts in their minds. Even with a standard spoon-fed film, people see it differently, it's just the way that it is. And then there are films or writings that you could read once, and then ten years later, read again, and get way more from. You've changed, but the work stays the same. Suddenly, it's got way more meaning for you depending on where you are. I like things that have a kernel of something in them. They have to be abstract. The more concrete that they are, the less likely that this thing will happen. The maker has to feel it and know it in a certain way and be honest to it. Every single decision passes through this one person and if they judge it and do it correctly, then the work holds together for that one person and they feel that it's honest and it's right. And then it's released and from that point on, there's not one thing that you can do about it. You can talk about it, try to defend it, or try to do this or that. It doesn't work. People still hate it. They hate it. It doesn't work for them, and you've lost them. You're not going to get them back. Maybe 20 years later, they'll say, my God, I was wrong. 
Or maybe 20 years later they'll hate it when at first they loved it. Who knows? It's out of your control. But I felt a race ahead. I didn't think it. Abstract things are important to a film, but very few people get the chance to really go all out with cinema. Creations are an extension of yourself, and you go out on a limb whenever you create anything. It's a risk. Chris Rudley asks Lynch, again in Lynch on Lynch, did you despair about ever finishing the film? Lynch responds, I despaired plenty. At one time, I was thinking of building a small, eight-inch-tall Henry and animating him through some small cardboard sets just to fill the blanks. There are dark times in every picture, and even after every picture. Not everyone loves what you've done, and negativity is a powerful thing. And even the positive things are upsetting in a way, because then you want to please the people the next time again. You've got to just think about the work, but it's not always easy. I despaired a couple of times during The Elephant Man that I would make it through, and at the end of June... So much had gone into it, and it was such a disappointment. I feel now that I shouldn't have spent so much time on a race ahead. I should like to have made more films in that time, but it wasn't happening. It was extremely frustrating to hold on to everything for so long. At one point in the film, Jack Nance gets up and walks to his apartment door, and by the time we cut to the outside corridor, Jack Nance has aged 18 months. The real miracle of a race ahead for me is that none of this stuff matters. None of the stuff is apparent when you watch the film. The world of Eraserhead is completely immersive and entirely realised and is a lesson to every young filmmaker in how to make a film work when money and resources are not in your favour. It's important also to note that it was during the five years of production for Eraserhead that David Lynch started practising transcendental meditation, something that will continue to influence and define not just his work as a filmmaker, but his whole life. But we'll come back to TM at a later time as we continue to track Lynch's journey. Eraserhead premiered at the Filmex Film Festival in Los Angeles on the 19th of March, 1977. On its opening night, the film was attended by 25 people. 24 viewed it the following evening. However, Ben Barinholtz, head of distribution at Libra Films, persuaded local theatre Cinema Village to run the film as a midnight feature, where it continued for a year. After this, it ran for 99 weeks at New York's Waverly Cinema had a year-long midnight run at San Francisco's Roxy Theatre from 1978 to 79 and achieved a three-year tenure at Los Angeles' New Art Theatre between 1978 and 81. During a run of screenings in New York and Los Angeles, Eraserhead was paired with the 1979 animated short film Asparagus, created by Susan Pitt, for nearly two years. It wasn't widely accepted by critics upon release, but the time that Eraserhead spent on the midnight circuit endeared it to a large audience of genre fans. Beats the hell out of me. I gotta think about it for a while. Oh, I thought it was the uh, ultimate suspense thriller. I kept waiting for something to happen and it never did. Very entertaining. Very lively film. Uh, gosh, it was the best thing I've seen all year. Some inane, bizarre person with a disturbed mind wrote that film and I did not enjoy it. I enjoyed it very much. My kind of movie. Eraserhead is a unique motion picture experience. I recommend it to everyone. I liked it. I've seen it five times. It's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it was very good acting, but I've seen it eight times, and that's about enough. This time I interpreted it as a nightmare, this time. I thought there were other meanings, but now I'm not sure, really. I compare it to uh, early Fellini, but um, I like Fellini better. The Thank most you. intense like thing I've ever seen in my entire life. I thought it was an intelligently made, compelling nightmare about the repressed sexuality of Henry Spencer. That was his name, right? Henry Spencer? Variety offered a negative review, calling it a sickening bad taste exercise. The review expressed incredulity over the film's long gestation and described its finale as unwatchable. Comparing Eraserhead to Lynch's next film, The Elephant Man, Tom Buckley of the New York Times wrote that while the latter was a well-made film with an accomplished cast, the former was not. Buckley called Eraserhead murkily pretentious and wrote that the film's horror aspects stemmed solely from the appearance of the deformed child rather than from its script or performances. 
Writing in 1984, Lloyd Rose of The Atlantic wrote that Eraser had demonstrated that Lynch was one of the most unalloyed surrealists ever to work in the movies. Rose described the film as being intensely personal, finding that unlike previous surrealist films such as Louis Bunuel's 1929 film Unshan Andalou or 1930's Large Door, Lynch's imagery isn't reaching out to us from his films, rather we're sinking into them. For a contemporary audience and an audience more familiar with David Lynch as a filmmaker, Eraserhead has been reappraised since that initial mixed reception. Writing for Empire magazine, Steve Baird rated the film 5 stars out of 5. He wrote that it was a lot more radical and enjoyable than Lynch's later Hollywood efforts, and highlighted its mix of surrealist body horror and black comedy. A reviewer writing for Film 4 rated Eraserhead 5 stars out of 5, describing it as by turns beautiful, annoying, funny, exasperating and repellent, but always bristling with a nervous energy. The Film 4 reviewer wrote that Eraserhead was unlike most films released to that point, save for the collaborations between Louis Bunuel and Salvador Dali. However, Lynch actually denies ever having seen any of these films before making Eraserhead. Writing for The Village Voice, Nathan Lee praised the film's use of sound, writing, To see the film means nothing, one must also hear it. He described the film's sound design as an intergalactic seashell cocked to the ears of an acid-tripping gargantua. Here's filmmaker Richard Linklater on Eraserhead. What impressed me most the first time I saw that, and I just love it, because he's just taking you so much into Henry's world, you know, Jack Nance's world. And it's just, I remember watching it the first time, just how fucking long it took the elevator door to shut. And that happens in our lives like every day, right? But to put that in a movie, I was thinking, the real-time ride up to the floor and the long, it just, it just blew me away. It's like, oh, a film can do that. Films set their own visual palette and their own tone, and I've always been amazed and how forgiving audiences can be and accepting the way we take on art, the way we watch it way we perceive it. I think if you just set your rules that an audience will follow you, you know, they want to, just, um, and you can set a tone and a pace that as long as something about it is intriguing or compelling, that you might be able to keep an audience with um, even that level of kind of real-time realness. It also began to grab the attention of a number of other filmmakers, including Stanley Kubrick, who showed Eraserhead to his cast and crew before shooting The Shining. In a thread that we'll pick up on our next David Lynch episode, Mel Brooks famously loved the film. Despite the film costing Lynch five years of his life and his first marriage, Eraserhead was a success for all intents and purposes, and was the first step in a career of filmmaking that is singular and unique to this day. Before we wrap up this chapter in the David Lynch story, let's quickly take a look at the rest of 1977. There are a number of other films that came out this year that, along with Eraserhead, make up some of my favourites of all time. Dario Argento's Giallo Slasher, crossed with a perverted fairy tale in Suspiria, comes out in 1977, as does William Friedkin's Sorcerer, a film that, along with Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate, is largely responsible for the studio systems completely changing their relationships with auteur directors. The only difference there is that Heaven's Gate is complete pants, and Sorcerer is actually one of three stone-cold masterpieces that William Friedkin made in the 1970s. Some other favourites of mine from 1977 are Annie Hall, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, House, The Hills Have Eyes, and a little indie film called Star Wars. At the 50th Academy Awards, Annie Hall wins big, picking up Best Picture, Best Director for Woody Allen, Best Actress for Diane Keaton, and Best Original Screenplay. Best Actor goes to Richard Dreyfuss for The Goodbye Girl. The five most financially successful films at the worldwide box office in 1977 are A Bridge Too Far, Saturday Night Fever, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Smokey and the Bandit, and Star Wars. sources for this podcast include Lynch on Lynch, edited by Chris Rodley, and Room to Dream by Christine McKenna. As always, please make sure to give this podcast a friendly review wherever you're catching it and share it with a friend. We've actually just started charting in a number of different places around the world, but most excitingly here in my home country in Australia. Five-star written reviews on Apple Podcasts means so much more than you realise, so if you're able to do that and contribute to this podcast reaching more people, that would genuinely be amazing. 
If you want to get in touch and be part of the show, you can either find us on socials or email us at bluerose.filmreview at gmail.com. If you don't already follow the show on Instagram, that's a great place to connect with me and a whole bunch of other people that just love films. My first short story collection, called Where Lies the Strangling Fruit, is available to buy on paperback or Kindle on Amazon. I'll have the link for that down below. Thanks to producer Ritterman for our theme music, and thanks to Acast for hosting this podcast. That's all for now, and I'll see you next week for another episode of the Blue Rose Film Podcast. Until then, always remember, in heaven everything is fine. Take care.